All right. Well, welcome everybody to Mercy Road Church. If I have not met you, my name is Mike Lotz. I'm the lead pastor. You are joining us in the middle of a sermon series called Failing Forward. We're going to make mistakes in life. You have, I have. We will fail at times. That doesn't mean we're failures. We are loved by the God who created us, who sustains us even in this moment, and who redeems us through the cross. But how do we fail forward? That's the question we're asking each week. We're looking at the life of Moses in this series. Moses was very imperfect, but he made progress in knowing and trusting and loving God. And so each week we look at a, a, a section, a snapshot, if you will, in the life of Moses, a failure that Moses experienced, that he committed. And we, we watch how God interacts with that failure. That's what God wants to do with you and I. He wants to take our mistakes, our mess-ups, and do something beautiful in and through those, even through our mistakes and our failures. Today, we are going to look at the failure of fearlessness, fearlessness. We've already talked about the failure of fear, and, and we looked at how Moses was prompted to uh, grab a snake by the tail and face the fears that really caused him to want to run in the other direction. He was afraid of not being good enough, not having the public speaking ability, not being credible enough to do the thing that God wanted him to do. Now we look at the other side of the coin, the failure of not having enough fear or not having the right kind of fear. If you think about it, if we're going to have an intimate relationship with the God who generated all of reality, there is a, a, a type of appropriate healthy fear that, that that foundation, that friendship must be built on. And when we lose sight of that, we're losing sight of reality itself. And, and so we go to this really fascinating little part of scripture in Exodus 34. Moses is totally getting to know God by this point and to trust God, they are tight. But throughout this part of his story, he, he's asking God for assurance. Are you sure you're going to go with me? I can continue to do this and lead your people, but will you be with me? And God replies, yes, Moses, I'm going to be with you. We pick it up at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. For some of you, that's all you need to hear this morning. God knows your name, and he loves you, even in your mistakes and failures, and he's going to be with you. He is with you. Verse 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. The Lord in Hebrew, Hebrew is I am, Yahweh. Uh, this incredible tip to the fact that he never had a beginning. He doesn't have an end. I'm going to proclaim my name or my reality in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What an interesting phrase. He's saying, I don't report to anybody, Moses. <laughs> no one dictates my actions. I, I do that. I'm self-generating and self-regulating. But he said, here's the deal, Moses. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must 
not be seen. What a curious little part of scripture. And then we fast forward to uh, Exodus 34, 8 through 9. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. After this exchange, it prompts Moses to worship God. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. He's responding to a conversation they had in between those scriptures where the Lord says, the people you're leading, they're stiff-necked. They're so disobedient. They want me to come into their presence, but it would literally consume them because I'm a holy God. And so Moses says, would you, would you help us to fail forward? And God agrees. If you're taking notes, the first point is this. Moses had a kind of fearlessness, a familiarity, you might say. He wasn't afraid of God. And you just have to ask the question, is that a good thing? Is it a failure or not? Verse 8 really gets at it. He said, okay, you promised to be with me. Now, now show me your glory. The phrase would say, I, I want to take it all in. I want to be intimate. I want to be, as another part in Exodus would say, a friend to you. It says God related to Moses like a friend. He talked to him as a man would talk to his friend, is what the text says. And so he says, so let's do that. Show me your glory. And God tries to explain to him the unexplainable. You know, how many of you think that it is a good thing to want to see God's glory? I, I do, right? You're all like waiting to see what I do. Do you? I don't know. Um, how many of you think it's maybe inappropriate to ask that? I do. Wait, he raised his hand to both questions. Yeah, which one is it? Yes, yes. It's both, of course. We were made by God. And scripture uses these terms like, like father. We can call God our father, relate to him in this intimate way. And it says in the New Testament, we are friends with God, and yet it would appear that there is a certain type of friendship that you have with God that you have with nobody else, and it needs to be predicated on a certain type of reverence that exists in a unique way and is found in no other relationship. So let's get into that. What is the fear of God? Let's just dissect the word that is used most often in the Hebrew text. The Old Testament is written in, in Hebrew. It's called Yorak, Yorak. Kind of like Iraq, but Yurok. Yurok um, is fear, terror, fearing. It could mean awesome, or it can literally in the noun form mean a terrifying thing, an object that would cause fear. It also is shorthand for fear of God. Respect, reverence, piety, to be revered. That's the lexical range of what the word can mean. All of our English words have a lexical range. You can use it in this context or this context. So what does it mean in this context, in the context where, where we're talking about having a friendship, a relationship with God who made us? The best way I can define that is awe. Now that's hard in English because we call stuff awesome that's not really awesome, right? I had tacos on Friday night that were so awesome. Now they were awesome in the way that I'm using it in this lexical range. Oasis de Vida, our, our Spanish speaking uh, church, sister church that meets here at 1.30 made them for me. And I almost got in a car accident because I was, they were on my passenger seat and I was driving home and I just couldn't help myself. So, in, you know, so they were great, but really were they awesome? 
did they, do they inspire awe? Like in the same way when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon, you're like, whoa, or the ocean, or you look out into space. No, no, there were really tasty tacos, right? <laughs> Only God, if you really think about it, is awesome, is worthy of your awe. Awe is that noise you make when your jaw drops and you don't really have another word for it. When you're like, whoa. And that really makes a lot of logical sense if you really consider that anything else you've been tempted to label awesome was his patent, his design, his forethought, his creativity, his artistry. He alone is awesome. That's really what the fear of the Lord is, and that's what it means. Proverbs gets at this uh, counterintuitive principle, that the idea that we need to fear God, when it says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Do you want to have the capacity to navigate the difficulties that you're facing in life? That, that would be wisdom. Start with a reverential awe in the presence of God. Relate to God first, the beginning of wisdom with awe. That is sometimes counter our culture. Have you heard of Buddy Jesus? There's a, it's a little action figure doll you can buy, and it has Jesus doing this. And, and I, it's kind of a joke because it's kind of critiquing uh, the evangelical culture that has made God so accessible, we've kind of made him a parody. And we forget that if God is God, he's God. And that's awesome. And we're not God. If we strive for friendship with God based on equality, we're going to fail. C.S. Lewis, I think, got it exceptionally well, got it right, as he is uh, frequently doing in all of his uh, fiction and nonfiction, when he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia this little bit. Let me read it for you. Uh, his celebrated children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells of the adventure of four children in the magical kingdom of Narnia. It's a fun story, but it is actually an allegory of Christ and salvation, with Christ represented by the lion, Aslan. When in Narnia, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Okay, that's if you haven't read the books, a little weird. Beavers talk in it. Uh, and the beavers are describing this mighty lion to the children. Is he a man? Asked Lucy. Or probably more accurately, is he a man? You know, because they have the British accent. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of all beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. What was brilliant about the allegory in the Chronicle of Narnia and specifically the idea that the Christ figure is a lion is that you see this picture of Lucy kind of snuggling up to Aslan in, in his mane in the book, and, and yet you also see the image of this huge lion roaring and banishing the, the demon figure, the devil figure, the white witch. And both can be true. Two things can be true at the same time. Sometimes in our culture we like to think in, in this or that, but two things can be true at the same time. It is quite possible for God to be the most ferocious, dangerous, strong being in the world because he's generated everything, and at the very same time, the most loving, 
nurturing, protective, warm, understanding, empathetic being that has ever existed. He is 100% mercy and 100% justice at the same time. And so that has implications for how we relate to him. And if we strive for a friendship with God based on equality, we're not going to have a very deep relationship with God. Think about how this works even in some human interactions. Many of you have children who are in that extended process in our culture of becoming an adult, right? It's about 25 years after they turn 18, right? No? But, but as they get there, as we get there, do you notice there are little milestones where it becomes quite a bit easier to be truly a friend with your adult children? My parents and I were friends. We really are. I enjoy spending time with them as well as my in-laws. And yet, every once in a while, a thought occurs to me, because I have my own children, wow, these people changed my diapers. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that just grounds you a little bit. It should. So even though we're tight, I will never get fully away from the simple fact that their union brought me into existence, and they explained basic grammar to me, and fed me macaroni and cheese, and put up with my tantrums, because dad is dad, and mom is mom. They can, we can be friends, and yet it's not quite the same friendship that I have with, uh, say, the person who I write these m messages with, Pastor Tom Bennett in uh, Orange County, California. We went to seminary together. We're the same age. We have a lot of the same interests and hobbies. There's a homogeneous union there where we're just on a peer level. This is true. Some of you have felt this at work in the corporate world or the military or wherever you've worked or in education. You can be friends with your boss. You can. And yet, it's, it's different than being friends with a coworker on the same salary, grade, or, or, or job position. Isn't it? I mean, it is. And, and the show The Office made a killing by pointing out how awkward it gets when the boss tries to pretend it's n there's no difference, right? <laughs> that there's, there's always a difference. There's always just a little bit of a difference. God is the monarch of the universe. If you were to sit down with the president you most respected out of all of American history, probably Lincoln, somebody like that, and you got to hang out with him, go on a little time machine, and you're interacting with Lincoln, and, oh, man, great job on freeing the slaves and the beard, everything. Really, you're, you're really going to be a celebrated guy, and you could be friends with Lincoln, but it would never escape your mind. This is Abraham Lincoln. Like, I got, like, a good job promotion at work, but he, he <laughs> I mean, he's a big deal. He's the president, and not just any president. If we revere certain people like parents or leaders or, in our culture, athletes and pop stars, why wouldn't we revere God? Early in my uh, ministry career, I was at a more traditional church that was older, about 50 years old. And one woman always called me Reverend. She, she would always say Reverend Lotzer, which is kind of a weird thing to be called when you're a 20-something, and um, I, ac I actually said Marge, her name is Marge, 
would you not call me that? And she goes, well, I'm always going to call you Reverend because that's what you are. And I said, well, here's kind of my problem with that word in particular. I like pastor. That's fine if you want to call me pastor. I like Mike. Mike works even better. But pastor is somebody that just kind of protects and directs a group of sheep. (laughs) And it's not glamorous. It's really more of a utilitarian description of what I do. I just shepherd people. Reverend, if you look at the etymology of it, it's someone to be revered. And I'm pretty convinced, Marge, (laughs) that on my best day in this position, I'm not to be revered. Only God is truly to be called reverend, to be revered. So if, if the way not to pursue a friendship with God is to insist that we're on equal playing fields, that we should not relate to God like we're colleagues, how do we get a friendship going with God? Here's the counterintuitive principle. As our worshipful fear of God increases, so will our friendship with God. As our worshipful fear, that's just long form for awe, whoa, as that turns up, so will intimacy with God. When was the last time you just presented yourself before God because he can see you and hear your thoughts and know you. He has walked with you every hour of your life. When was the last time you just got silent in the presence of God for a long time and just said, God, you're God and I'm not. I just revere you. I respect you. What if that simple action is the key to the deep and satisfying relationship with God that you kind of have always sensed has been missing in your life? You've always wanted it, but it's never felt rich and satisfying and deep. What if the key, counterintuitively, is reverence? Turning up your worshipful awe we can do this in the presence of mere men and women who impress us, who lead us, why in the world would we not do it in the presence of the God that always was and always is and who initiated your existence and who could end it and who promises in his goodness to go with Moses to be with him. Moses has a problem. He doesn't know if God's with him. And God says, no, I'm with you. You keep saying, I'm with you. He's like you. He's like me. We're like, God, are you there? Are you with me? Are you for me? I'm afraid. And then that pendulum swings when he's convinced that God loves him and is with him, and it swings too far in the other direction. It's kind of like Martin Luther once said, all of human history is like a drunk man on a horse. He goes to the left. He goes to the right. He goes to the left. We overcorrect, right? It swings so far in the other direction that now he, he, he's like, bud with God, buddies. And it's like, show me your glory. And God's, God's not mad at Moses. It's actually a good kind of failing, right? It's, it's a good-natured failing. The intention is intimacy. What good parent among us would get angry with our child for wanting to be more intimate with us? Our kids are snugglers, right? They're always wanting to snuggle us, which is great. 
until you're like in public and they're like all clinging on you and you're like, let go of me. <laughs> is that a failure? I guess, but does it touch my heart? Absolutely. If they're still doing that at 45, we might have problems, right? <laughs> As our worshipful fear of God increases, we'll actually get that snuggling intimacy, that sense of assurance that we actually want the most. But isn't that how so many things in life work? If you try to go right at certain things, you'll miss it every time. Happiness is like that. If you just try to be happy, you'll never be happy. But if you take care of yourself, engage in healthy activities, form meaningful friendships, and all that takes work and stuff, happiness oftentimes results. If you want to be close to God, don't go in for the hug right away. Bend the knee first. Remind yourself you're in the presence of the God who shaped the Himalayas at the command of his whisper. One of the ways that I do this intentionally for my children, but I actually am doing it for me, is I read this devotional to my kids. It's called Indescribable, 100 Devotions About God and Science. Science is a great way to stimulate a greater sense of reverence for who God is, who you're actually talking to. So I'll give you a little example. It always starts out with the scripture, Isaiah 40, 26. Look up to the skies. Who created all these stars? He leads out all the armies of heaven one by one. He calls all the stars by name. He is very strong and full of power, so not one of them is missing. That's Isaiah 40, 26. And then there's a little section. I won't read the whole thing, but there's a, a be amazed section. If you wanted to try to count all the stars we know about in the Milky Way galaxy, how long would it take you? My kids are like, I don't know, and then they guess. It's cute. By counting one star each second, it would take you 3,168 years. Next time you're outside at night, see how many stars you can count. But don't stay out there for thousands of years. I'll leave this right on the corner here. Whoever would like to take that, that's a free copy for you. We have others available in the children's ministry. There are ways that we can engage a deeper walk with God. But all of them actually need to start with reverence. Now, if they stayed in a perpetual state of reverential awe, you wouldn't actually find intimacy. There are plenty of atheists who actually are pretty reverent atheists when it comes to thinking about how small they are compared to the universe and how big the ocean is and how wonderful mountains are. And so they have a sense of scale on where they are in the world, and yet they have no relationship with the living God who created all those things. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Following God is not one long exercise in keeping your head down and just shuffling along because we're so little and he's so big. We see a Moses who God engages. God goes after Moses like he's going after you. He wants an intimate relationship like a parent and a child. He goes so far to call it friendship, but make no mistake, you cannot stare in the face of God and live. Not like you would a buddy who you play golf with. One of your girlfriends you go on weekend getaways with. Not like that. God 
it is a consuming fire. His glory radiates to such a degree, you can't handle it all. It kind of reminds me of looking at the sun. You know, I don't know what age it is, but eventually we all learn that it's not a really good idea to stare directly in the sun for a prolonged period of time. If you haven't figured that out, you probably have severe vision problems. But stop doing that, right? That's, I think, why we like sunsets and sunrises, because for a brief moment, the atmosphere of our Earth filters that amazingly intense burning fire that is perfectly positioned to keep us alive and warm and thriving, and we can look at it, and we can take pictures, but at noontime, if it's not a cloudy day, you try looking at that thing, give it one second, and you're gonna start seeing halos. Give it 10 seconds, kind of like that SNL skit, Harry Carey. You're gonna start to have retinal damage. Your vitreous humor, the little fluid in the back, is start to, gonna suffer. It's just not a good idea. It's like the only way you can look at the beauty of the sun is through a filter. What if God knows this? What if one day we will look into the face of God and live? This is exactly what the Bible promises. In a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the equivalent of ancient Las Vegas, in Corinth, he said this, Now all we can see of God is like a cloudy picture in a mirror. Later we will see him face to face. This is a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee named Paul, who has been convinced that the Messiah has come, lived in our place, died in our place, has rose to life, and now he can't stop talking about this Messiah, and he knows how wrong it is in Judaism to say we're going to stare God face to face. He didn't just skip that part in Exodus. He's got the first five books of our Bible memorized. And he has the audacity to say later, we will see him face to face. We don't know everything, but we will, just as God completely understands us. What if Jesus is the filter that allows you to satisfy the urge that you have had your entire life, total, pure intimacy with God himself? This is the claim of the Christian faith. God is to be revered. No one can look God in the face and live. He's holy. He's a consuming fire. His weight, his glory is so vast. He's unknowable. And yet, that same God, in his creative generosity, in his passionate love for those he created in his image, invites us into a real satisfying, rich relationship. And he has made a way for us to look him in the face. There's nothing that is harder for me in parenting than when my kids do something wrong that they start to feel ashamed of. How many of you relate to that, right? You just don't, shame is just not something you want for your kids. And, And you know the universal sign of shame. You know, people won't look you in the eye. Sometimes people will come and confess things to me as a pastor and the tears come, and in and, and the hard part, what, whatever they're talking about, they can't look me in the face. But then there are the, these moments in parenting or pastoring when the Holy Spirit breaks through, 
and they really start to believe that they are forgiven, they're free, they're loved and cherished, they're fully known and fully accepted by God, that they're not a failure, even though they've failed. And it's as if the Spirit just lifts their chin ever so gently, and they look me in the face, and there's this just warmth that comes over me, this, this is how it's supposed to be. What if that's what God wants for you? What if he wants you to look him full in the face? What if he's provided everything for you to be able to be that intimate with him? He has. And yet, to access that, we need to start with an appropriate fear of who we're relating with. A reverence and awe that drives us to worship. Did you notice Moses' response to this whole interaction is he bows down in the presence of God. What does he say? He says, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then go with us. Stay with me. Although this is a stick Stiff-necked people, stubborn, full of failures and flaws, forgive our wickedness and sin. It's like Moses needs that, knows that somebody has to pay the bill for all this sin. And he says, just somehow, some way, do that and take us as your inheritance. Bring us in close. How does he respond to this? God promises him he will do that, but he doesn't say how. He makes a covenant with him, a promise with Moses. And yet, there's mystery in the language of that covenant. How is he going to do all this? And yet, we have the incredible privilege to live on this side of the long lens of human history and see a lot more of how he's actually made this possible. We get to see how Jesus Christ came and became that filter so we can look the God of the universe in the face experience his love. If you've never considered that, today may be your day. What would you do? It would start with just a reverential prayer. God, you're God and I'm not. I have failed. I do make mistakes. We're not the same. You're God and I'm not. Would you forgive me? I accept your forgiveness. And from this place of awe, could a friendship form? A simple prayer like that, acknowledging that this is possible because of Jesus Christ, your son, initiates you into a friendship with God. Many of you would pay exorbitant amount of money to be personally associated, to be close friends with a certain celebrity that you follow musician, perhaps, or a sports figure, or a world leader. Those offers are small and insignificant compared to what is being offered to you. And it all starts with reverence. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the failures of fearlessness we have had in approaching you. At times, we have been too casual, presumptive, at times, we have not taken time to, to experience the weight, the gravity of who you are and who we are in relationship to you. You are the, the head coach of the universe. You're the monarch of all reality. You're the founder 
of existence. You're the author of our life. And yet you call us friends. We worship you in reverence. And as we do that, we ask by the power of your spirit that friendship would form and deepen and grow. Lord, show us your glory. But may we experience that glory through the filter of your son, Jesus Christ. May we, by your grace, one day see you face to face.